Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. You know how Jesus begins it, where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Most of you recognize this symbol. If you're old enough to remember the 60s, that was done all the time. Of course, it was popularized by Richard Nixon, who did it in stereo to the entire world. Peace, the peace symbol. As bumper stickers say, visualize world peace. And people have been visualizing that for a long time without realizing world peace. In fact, one person did a take on that bumper sticker that instead of visualize world peace, they put visualize world peace. World, W-H-I-R-L-E-D, world, P-E-A-S. Now, why'd they do that? I think simply to say you'll accomplish as much by visualizing world peace as visualizing world peace. We haven't got world peace. We haven't attained it yet. People have been looking for it for years. And history shows, even though Lenin said, give peace a chance, we're not experiencing it. Here's an article I found about Ted Turner. This is from Atlanta. Media mogul Ted Turner wanted to see if anybody has a real vision of the future world at peace and in harmony with the environment. He says his quest ended in disappointment. Turner said that he funded a competition to find a book that gave a workable plan for a world of peace. Quote, with 10,000 manuscripts, we did not have one plausible treatise on how we could get a sustainable, peaceful future, Turner said Thursday. Here's a guy looking for it, funding it, and says, can't find it. Visualize world peace. Did you know that of all the peace treaties that have been signed and broken, that the world in 3,100 years of recorded history has only seen 286 years of peace. Now that means only 8% of all recorded world history has been a time of peace. I'm sure maybe back then they even had little stickers on chariots, visualize world peace. But 8,000 peace treaties have been signed and broken. According to the uh, Canadian Army Journal, since 3600 B.C., 3.64 billion people have been killed. The value of property destroyed is equal to a golden belt around the world that would be 97.2 miles wide and 33 feet thick. We seem to have a Incredible capacity for conflict. Now, when we turn to our Bibles, we discover something. We discover that it begins and ends in peace. 
begins in a garden of peace, peace with God and fellowship with God. It ends in a garden of eternity where people are at peace forever. But in between those two points of beginning and ending, there hasn't been a whole lot of peace, only 8%. There have been attempts. There have been noble-minded people who have thought, we can do this. The Romans tried it. They issued the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, an enforced peace. They tried and with relative success managed to take the thieves off the roads, the pirates off the seas, and maintain for a period of time a stability worldwide. But it didn't last. The English tried it. They called it the Pax Britannica. And for a period of time, they succeeded in bringing a stability and economic development to the world. Point is, people everywhere of all times have looked to find a sustainable peace and have been unable to. Heard an interesting story about a couple. They were retired and they were looking for the perfect place to live the rest of their lives in peace. They were worried about the threat of nuclear war and they began a study to find of all the places in the inhabited earth, the most immune place from the threat of war. And they found it. And they moved there. And they were so happy at what they had found. They moved all their belongings there. They set up house. And they sent their pastor the first Christmas a card of greetings from their new paradise in the Falkland Islands. That was December 1981 when they sent that Christmas card. Around March of 1982, their world changed as the Falkland Islands became the epicenter of a huge war between Britain and Argentina. Peace eludes us, and yet we read, Blessed, oh, how happy to be envied, declared blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, I'd like to begin this morning with a working definition, a definition of what a peacemaker is and what really peace the Bible speaks about is. President Herbert Hoover was right when he said, peace is not made on the council tables nor by treaties, but it is made in the hearts of men and women. I love how the Hebrews give their greeting. Shalom, they say. Now we think that just means howdy, hi, bye. But it means more than that. The idea of the shalom of the Hebrews is to convey God's highest good to another. May God's highest good be experienced in your life. Now, when you read through the Bible, you discover a couple of different things about peace. Number one, there is peace with God. And number two, there is the peace of God. And they're two entirely different things. Peace with God is not a feeling primarily. It's, it's a state. It's a reality with or without feeling. It basically means when I'm at peace with God, the absence of war with God, the absence of conflict with God. Now, maybe you've never been to church before or read the Bible, and it could be that you hear that and you go, no, wait a minute, conflict with God, war with God? I have nothing against God. I'm not at war with God. And that's where the misunderstanding comes in. You may have nothing against God, but God has something against everyone who hasn't been cleansed of sin. 
The Bible says this in Isaiah, Your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. And also through the prophet Isaiah, There is no peace, says the Lord, to the wicked. You put all of the scriptures together and you discover that between God and man, there is a war. There are obstacles that block the way between sinful man and holy God. God cannot be at peace with an unpardoned sinner, even though that person feels really good about themselves. Maybe you've discovered that. You maybe share the gospel with people and they say, well, what are you talking about? I feel great. I feel fine. I feel peaceful. It's an elusive peace. It's an illusion. Put it this way. Let's say that you commit a crime against the United States government and they're after you. So now there's a conflict. There's a war going on between you and the government. You've offended them. They're after you. They want to arrest you. You leave the country. You find some paradise in some foreign digs somewhere. And you're there sitting under your palm tree, drinking your little drink, and you feel so good. You feel peaceful. You might feel peaceful, but you're not at peace with our government. And I could prove it to you. Step back into the United States borders, and you'll discover an arrest is waiting for you. So though you might have a feeling of peace, you're not experiencing the state of peace. What must happen? That person who's offended the government must surrender on the terms of that government. Spiritually speaking, it means that I wave my spiritual white flag and I surrender on God's terms. That's peace with God. But number two, there is the peace of God. Now, this is a feeling. This is an experience that we have. And basically, it's when I discover that there is no war with God, no conflict with God any longer, (sighs) I sigh. I, I now have a feeling of peacefulness as I realize that I belong to God. He loves me. He cares for me. I've surrendered on his term, and now I realize that my life is under his control. And as Romans 8.28 says, all things will now work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's the peace of God. Listen to how Paul writes about it in Philippians chapter 4. Be anxious for nothing but in everything. By prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. That's the peace of God. Now, just like you can have an unbeliever at war with God, feeling really peaceful, good about himself or herself, did you know you can also have a believer who is at peace with God because their sins have been forgiven, who don't feel very peaceful. They feel filled, filled, they feel filled. They feel filled with anxiety, worry, desperation. And they go, where is this peace the Bible speaks about? I'm not experiencing it. Even though there's nothing in the way between their God and themselves, the road has been cleared, the obstacle of sin taken away. They feel miserable. Why is that? Well, 
we could spend a lot of time on that, but I will say, and I'm going to put it in a simple formula, hopefully not too simplistic. When Jesus is your Savior, you have peace with God. When Jesus is your Lord, you have the peace of God. When you realize, hey, He is in control, He's in charge, I don't have to worry. When you really realize that, that's when you go, ah, I get it. I feel the peace of God that passes all understanding. So Jesus as Savior brings peace with God. Jesus as Lord brings the peace of God. That's the first step. And here's the working definition then of a peacemaker. A peacemaker is one who conveys God's highest good to another by removing the obstacles. Once again, Conveying God's highest good to another by removing the obstacle, which in this case is sin. God is the ultimate peacemaker. He has removed the obstacle of sin by providing his son to pay for our sins. Okay, that's the definition. Let me move on to the demonstration of peacemaking. What is the ultimate demonstration of how God made peace? It's the cross. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's what the movie The Passion is all about. Here's Jesus bleeding on a cross, arms outstretched, as if he's taking the hand of the Father and the hand of broken, sinful humanity and bringing us together. We could never meet on any other terms, but because of him, the peace treaty is signed. It's the great peace conference of the cross. By the way, that's the idea of what the angel said in Bethlehem. We talk about it every Christmas. Glory to God in the highest, the angel declared. And on earth, peace. Goodwill toward men. When I first read that statement, I was very young and cynical, and I looked at that and I said, what kind of an angel would say that? Where has this angel been? Does this angel not read the newspapers? The world has only seen 8% in its history of peace, and this angel is declaring peace on earth. Goodwill. What is it, a hippie angel? No. The literal translation would be glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men in whom God's favor rests. In other words, Jesus was God's way of showing goodwill to the world to end the conflict. One of the greatest missionary books ever written was called Peace Child by Don Richardson. We had Don out at our church in Albuquerque a few months back. And Don was a missionary uh, overseas. And he writes in his book of being an Aryan Jaya among the Sawi people, a very interesting group to evangelize, especially since they were cannibals. How's that for a mission field? And he studied their culture and was trying to discover the key to bring Christ to this group of people who exonerated treachery. They exonerated treachery. And any good, kind deed was deemed suspicious until he discovered something. He discovered that these tribes that were warring against each other for generations... If you took one child from a tribe, a son, a baby, and you gave the baby, imagine that, parents, 
You give that baby to the other tribe as a gift. There will be peace between those two tribes as long as that child lives. And he saw that and discovered the key to getting into that culture was telling that culture about God's peace child, Jesus Christ, whom he gave to the world and died on a cross and rose from the dead. And because he still lives, we can have peace with God. Isn't that beautiful? Do you remember what it felt like when you received God's peace child into your life? Do you remember that day or that evening? I still do. It was 1973 for me. I was up in San Jose. And for 400 miles, I sang as I rode my motorcycle from San Jose back down to Southern California to reconnect with friends and family. That feeling of, oh, yes. There's nothing now between God and me. I am in touch with Him. He's demonstrated His love for me on the cross. And so that's the ultimate demonstration of peacemaking. So we have a definition. We have a great demonstration. Look at the text again in verse 9. I call this the determination of a peacemaker. Notice that it doesn't say, Blessed are the peace talkers, or blessed are the peace negotiators, or blessed are the peace feelers, but blessed are the peacemakers. In other words, you and I have a commission, a determination. If you're a child of God, and this is a description of every child of God, not just a few, but all of them, then it ought to be my, as well as your, determination to be a peacemaker. It's your job description, you might say. A young girl was doing her homework upstairs, and her dad didn't know what she was doing. She's working on some report. He said, sweetheart, what are you doing? She got all excited. She said, daddy, I'm writing a report on how to achieve world peace. And dad said, well, sweetheart, that's beautiful, but don't you think that's a tall order for such a small child? And she smiled back with confidence, and she said, nah, dad, don't worry. My three friends are helping me. We're working on it together. As if to say, if we get four people who are like-minded, we can lick this thing. Hmm. What if all of God's people were like-minded in this? What could be accomplished? Blessed are the peacemakers. I want to give you four suggestions on exactly how to do that. Number one, by making peace with God yourself. If you don't have peace with God, if you haven't come to the cross of Jesus Christ, you are in perpetual war and conflict with your Creator. You have to surrender. You can't negotiate with God. Oh, God, I'll tell you what, I'll receive salvation. But no, you just surrender on His terms. You receive his son, his peace child. Number two, by helping others make peace with God. You want to be a peacemaker, evangelize. Because people around you are at war with God until they surrender to Christ. Paul put it this way, having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You've heard it said, that churches that don't evangelize will fossilize. Guaranteed that. It's true for an individual too. If you don't personally evangelize, you will personally fossilize spiritually. We sometimes lose touch as we go through this world. We make business deals. We drive on freeways. We buy donuts or whatever. We interact with people. We forget 
the emptiness that is around us. We lose touch with it. And you know what? It happens in the ministry more than any other place. You can lose touch with the fact that we are surrounded by people who are dying and going to hell without Christ. And we sometimes lose touch with that. And so we must be those agents to bring peace. Frankly, it's what keeps me going through the ministry. It's what, it's what keeps me going month by month and year after year, seeing changed lives. When I hear of somebody's life being changed by the power of the gospel... Or as what happened first service when a fellow came up to me in tears and just said, by what I heard on the radio years ago, my life and my family's life is now totally changed. Or somebody who comes to faith in Christ and goes out and starts a church or gets involved in ministry, there is no greater joy. Let me give you a third suggestion. First, you make peace with God yourself. You tell others how to make peace with God. Number three, by living at peace with other people. It's not easy. Um, The closer you are, the tougher it gets. Begin at home. Think of your relationships. Are they peaceful relationships that you have with your spouse, with your children, with your in-laws or outlaws, some would call them? Warren Wiersbe writes in his book about an uneducated fellow who came into his office to seek counsel. He didn't quite know how to say his words and articulate them correctly. So instead of saying, my wife and I have marital problems, he said, you know, me and the wife, we got martial problems. Interesting choice of words, like martial law, martial problems. And then he went on to say, yep, me and the wife, I think we need a recancellation. He meant reconciliation. But again, great choice of words. We're having some difficult problems, and we need to cancel out that debt and learn to get along with others. Now, I mentioned it's not easy. And if you live in the real world, you will agree. You will agree with the words of Paul in Romans 12, who said, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. If it is possible, I'm glad he said that. Because, you know, sometimes it's just not possible. You try. If you're doing it unilaterally, you put out the effort, but it doesn't always work. Peacemakers build bridges, not walls. Peacemakers drain their moats. There's a visual for you. We love to put moats around our lives, protect ourselves. Peacemaker will drain the moat and give access. Now, let me just address this church for a moment. In the spirit of peacemaking, I I understand that transitions can be difficult. And uh, for some, they can be painful. It was not easy for me to say goodbye to a family after 23 years of ministering to it and seeing it built up. And I know that the reverse is also true coming in. And it's, you know, sort of like the patient's on the table, the heart has been ripped out, a new heart has been put in, the stitches have been sewn. It's going to live, but it takes a while to have that body assimilate to that new organ and get blood flowing through it. Surgery, it's painful, it's hard, it takes time. And I want to say from my heart, I apologize for any pain that may have been caused 
by this transition. It's bound to cause some amount of pain. Any transition does. That's the reason we wanted to do Wednesday nights, just to informally share a few songs, talk about vision, interact with each other, and then pray. Pray as a church and say, God, what do you want? It's not my church. It's not your church. It's his church. Let's discover what the Lord would say, what the Lord would want. So, amen. I would, I would clap for that as well. And if you're not clapping, the ushers are going to take you out. No, I'm just kidding. So number one, make peace with God yourself. Teach others how to make peace with God themselves. Number three, drain the moats. Drain the moats. Make peace with others. Number four, help others make peace with others. Mediate, arbitrate, whatever you want to call it. Help other people come to terms with other people. The best example I have found of that in the Bible is a woman by the name of Abigail in the Old Testament. Abigail, it says, was a woman of great understanding and would to God there would be more like her. I want you to turn and let's look at the story. Would you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25 in your Bibles? If you don't have one, there is probably one close to you. You could borrow your neighbor's looking over his or her shoulder and then remember next time to bring yours. 1 Samuel chapter 25. Let me tell you the background. David is not yet king. He's got his men. They're out in the wilderness. They're tribal. They're um, warriors. And they notice that there is a guy by the name of Nabal. By the way, his name means fool, and it's a fitting name for him, as you'll discover. But Nabal and his crew is out there in the wilderness with their sheep and with their crops, and David's men offer protection. Later on, when David wants some food, sort of payback, some supplies, you know, we're hungry, could you just give us a good meal? Nabal refuses. This sets David off. He's ticked. He's now going to pursue Nabal and kill him and everyone with him. Then Abigail, the wife of Nabal, hears about it. Now let's pick that up in verse uh, 21 of 1 Samuel chapter 25. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him. And he repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave not one male of all who belong to him by morning light. Isn't it interesting how people always bring God into their revenge? Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face, ouch, before David. Okay, so it was a good thing. And bowed down to the ground. And so she fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please, let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please, let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. Interesting, she's talking about her husband. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back, from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, 
Now then, let your enemies and all who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present she brings a gift to him, which her maidservant has brought to my Lord. Let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord. And evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life. But the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that you, this shall be no grief to you nor offensive heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me, and blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. Isn't that a beautiful example of a woman who made peace between her husband and between a guy who was going to kill them all? A peacemaker. She built a bridge. She gave access. She calmed the waters instead of stirring them up. Peacemakers calm the waters. They don't stir them up. And I think we're being attacked by foreign invaders up on the roof. Let's move on with the rest of the text in uh, Matthew chapter 5. I want to close with this, the designation of peacemakers. Notice what Jesus says. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I'm looking over a face of sons and daughters of God, children of God. It doesn't say they will become sons of God, but they will be called sons of God. Um, How do you become a son of God? You begin in verse 2 and 3. You are poor in spirit. You mourn over your condition. You receive Christ. You repent of your sins. You know the story. You've done that. And then there is a transformation that occurs. There's a flow of this passage. You mourn. You become meek. That is power under control. You hunger and you thirst after righteousness. You become merciful, pure in heart. And as you go through that transformation, something happens. You want to reach out to people and you want to build bridges. And when you do that, you will be called sons of God. In other words, people look at your life and see your behavior, hear your words, and they say, oh, I get it. You must be one of God's kids. You act so much like I would picture God like. You've got to be related to him. You will be called sons of God. Being a peacemaker is one of the greatest advertisements for the gospel that exists. Because it shows that you are a son and daughter of the living God. So, as you leave this morning, I don't want you to go visualize world peace. You might as well visualize world peace 
But I do want you to give peace a chance. God's peace a chance. I want you to realize peace in your world. Start with your spouse. Have you got martial problems, some of you? Do you need a recancellation? Move out to your children, parents, extended family. What does that look like? How peaceful is that? I'm going to suggest some words that you might open the conversation with. Not like, well, you know, I'm right. Mom, dad, son, daughter. How about this? It'll be hard. Ready? I'm sorry. That'll go a long way, a lot further. Start with, I'm sorry. Or you might go up to them and say, let's pray. And before they have a chance to say no, just start praying. (laughs) Honestly, it'll work. I've done it. I watched it happen with my own father when we were estranged after I came to know Christ and he didn't want me to do anything but go to the Catholic Church. And there was that rift. And I walked up to him one night and I said, Dad, let's pray. And before he could say no, I just prayed for him. And by the end of the conversation, he was weeping. And he hugged me and said, that was so beautiful. Number three, use these words. Help me understand. I don't understand. So help me to understand. It will go a long way. I saw the passion, as most of you did. How many of you saw the film? Raise your hands. A moving film, an excellent film. I saw it twice. Once was in a small group back east with Mel Gibson himself, a little videotape he pushed into television. But I saw it again on the big screen, which is even more dramatic. And as I was watching those grotesque scenes of our bleeding Savior, a verse was going over and over in my head. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. If you want peace, you must begin at the cross. God will give no one peace now and for eternity until you surrender on his terms and you wave the white flag and you give your life over to Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. There's no peace without the Prince of Peace. A husband and wife were having martial problems. Their marriage was strained. And then their son died. If you know anything about those dynamics, you know that typically the problems that exist are exacerbated at that point. They get worse. And this got worse. They separated. They divorced. They moved to two separate sides of the country. She stayed in the town where her son died. He moved away. Years later, he was back in that town on business. And where did he go first? To the cemetery. And he stood at the grave of his son. And he was mourning the loss of his son. And he heard footsteps behind him. When he turned around, he saw his ex-wife. She was also there to pray, play pay regards to her dead son. Their first response was to be repulsed, to go in the opposite direction, but they didn't do that. You see, they had a common interest in one grave, their sons. They clasped hands. They grabbed them and they spent time together and reconciled a relationship over the death of a son. That's what God does. We have a common interest, do we not, in a single grave outside of Jerusalem that is now empty. 
where Jesus died and rose again from the dead. And what binds us together is that death of that peace child on our behalf. Think of it. Our peace took nothing less than the death of that son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again we're here gathered in a place we've sung some songs, we've heard some announcements, we've listened to your spirit as he has spoken the word through a very imperfect vessel. But we're confronted now with the truth. We're confronted with taking steps as a peacemaker that is not unilateral, but must be bilateral and must be in a way that gives you the greatest glory. Lord, some of us need to begin at first base. We can't go to third. We can't bring peace into a world until our hearts are at peace with the creator of that world. And so we realize as we pray right now that you see deep inside of us, you see our hearts. You know our thoughts. You know the real condition of us. And you're really the only one beside ourselves personally that know the condition of our heart. And it could be that some don't even yet personally know you. They haven't surrendered to you yet. They've come to church, but they haven't come to Christ. There hasn't been a surrender on your terms. And Lord, I pray that would occur right now in this place. As we have seen over the past few weeks, some come to Christ. We pray that you would rescue people and bring them into the kingdom. And right now as we're gathered here, as we're praying, if you're at a position in your life where you're ready to surrender your lives to Christ, I want you to raise your hand up. Just raise it up. Everybody's praying. I'll see your hand and I'll pray for you as we close this service. Raise up your hand and say, Skip, here I am. Pray for me. I'm going to surrender my life to Christ. Raise it up. God bless you. Amen. Right up in the front. And in the back. And right here on the side. Yes, ma'am. Lord, we're honored. We're grateful to see this beautiful birth of new life. And pray that you would extend your peace as they make Jesus their Lord and their Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.